The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Now, we're going to be taking a break from 1 Thessalonians, kind of, for the next two weeks. In our last study in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at some very difficult commands, and I got a lot of good feedback last week from the message. A lot of people telling me they wish I wouldn't have said that because it's hard, it's difficult, and I know that. And I told you it was difficult for me. One of the verses we looked at, we ended with 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, this is a present active imperative. Continually do good. Don't ever repay anyone evil for evil, but continually doing good. So, listen, believers, he's telling us, should act in love. They should not react in anger. I think revenge is probably one of the most natural of human responses to hurt or injury. But believers are never to do it. And no matter what anyone does to you, you know, there's not an exception here, well, unless they, you know, A, B, C, or D. No, no matter what they do to you, no matter how evil, we are not to retaliate. Now, that's hard enough to swallow. But Paul goes on in the verse to say, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Now, the Greek translated seek here is dioko, and it means to go after something with strong intent and effort. We could paraphrase. Rather than seek vengeance, go after the other person's highest good with a vengeance. Now think about that. They do you evil. Instead of retaliating, which we'd like to do, we're to go after their highest good with a vengeance. This is how Christians are called to live. This is not normal. This is not natural. We said last week, this is supernatural. This can only be done as we walk in the Spirit. This can only be done as we are abiding in Christ, trusting in His power. That's the only way anyone's going to do this. And when the world sees this, they take notice. Because the world doesn't normally see Christianity acting like Christians. So what I want to do for the next two weeks these these two messages are not you know different what i'm doing is launching from this idea of supernatural living launching from the idea that we are to be different we're to look different we're to act different we're to think different launching from that i want to spend the next 2 weeks talking about the narrow way and the rock and we're going to be dealing with the verses that bob read this morning And for our study this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 7, 13, and 14, which talks about the narrow and the wide gates. Now remember, this is connected with this verse in Thessalonians. This is connected with these commands that we have in Thessalonians that are telling us how to live. Hopefully this will make sense when we get through here. But let's look at these verses, 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate's wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now, the majority opinion is that these verses are talking about eternal life and eternal damnation. Christianity is the narrow and difficult way that leads to life. Now, you probably already know that I'm not going to take the majority opinion. Okay? But hear me out, okay? (laughs) Hear me out. To understand these verses, we have to answer some questions. First of all, who is the Sermon on the Mount intended for? Who's he writing to here? See, I see this sermon as addressed to believers. To be born again is to be a kingdom citizen. Paul tells us that in Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, the us here is the believers in Colossae. Paul says in 1-2 that he is writing to the saints. I don't think this is particular to the saints 
at Colossae, I think this is to saints in general. God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into His kingdom. So Yeshua's audience for this sermon is described by Matthew like this in verses in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth, and He taught them, saying... So his disciples came to him, he taught them. Who's the antecedent of them? The disciples. Okay, that's who he's talking to. It is the disciples he is talking to here. This sermon, this teaching is primarily for the disciples. Now confirming that the Sermon on the Mount was meant for the believing portion of society. You know, there's no point in telling unbelievers how to live. Okay? Christians have a hard enough time living the Christian life. How are you going to tell an unbeliever what they're supposed to do and not do? Though the disciples are the target audience, they weren't the only audience. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29, it says, when Yeshua finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He's teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So, as Yeshua taught His disciples, the crowd listened in with astonishment. So, although it's primarily addressed here to the disciples, He's aware that there's other people listening in on this, okay? So, we can see in these verses that the Lord does not lose sight of His larger audience. Among other things, He warns them to start out right by entering through the narrow gate. Now, in light of the rest of the New Testament, This could mean man's narrow and restricted way to God, which is by faith alone in Christ alone. Does that make sense? That that could certainly be, and that is the majority view. That's what he's talking about. This is how you get saved. This is the road. It certainly could be what Yeshua is teaching. It's clearly taught throughout the Bible. No question about that. Yeshua said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is narrow. Okay, Christ says, it's only me. There's no other way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. Have you heard somebody say, it doesn't matter what you call them. We're all worshiping the same God just by different names. You heard that? Let me tell you something, people. There is no such thing as Christianity that stands side by side with Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, and says we worship one God under many names. No, we do not. Christians believe fundamentally of necessity that there is one true God. That true God is not Allah. The true God is not Krishna. The true God is not the God of Joseph Smith or Buddha or the God of the Jews. The true God is the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. Titus 2.13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Yeshua. Yeshua is God. Okay? He is Yahweh. And as Yahweh, He seeks true worship. Worship based upon a knowledge of who He is in reality. Based upon His revelation to man. He doesn't grant men the freedom, just worship me any way you want, do whatever you want, and I'll just consider it worship. No. God is particular about His worship. His worship is intimately, vitally connected to truth. Without truth, there is no true worship of God. John 4, 24, he says, God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Christianity is all about Yeshua. And we have to understand that apart from Christ, there is no salvation. You know, people can say whatever. What about these people? What about the people in Africa who never heard? Without Christ, there's no salvation. What about the people who have heard, but they didn't hear enough, or they reject? There's no salvation apart from Christ. He is the only true God. The heart of the issue is who is Yeshua. People need to understand who He is. Who He is and what He has done can change not only our lives, but our eternity. So who is he? Well, the Bible teaches us very clearly. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. This is such an amazing text. First of all, it was an early church hymn. They sang this, okay, which is 
really cool because I think you learn more from singing than probably from teaching or anything else. But this is doctrine, people. But the interesting thing is this is some of the deepest doctrine on the kenosis in the New Testament, and yet Paul is using this teaching as an illustration of humility. It's an illustration. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, speaking of Christ, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua the Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the word name here, this is the Greek word anima, and it can mean name, rank, personality. Here the emphasis is on title or rank above all ranks. It's about position. What is the name above all names? Well, the movement of verse 9 through 11 doesn't stop at the phrase, give him a name, but flows right straight onto the universal confession that Yeshua the Christ is Lord. And Lord here, suggests the thing that is significant here is the ascription Yahweh, Lord. Yahweh. Verse 10 is a pretty much direct quotation of Isaiah 45.23, where Yahweh, having declared Himself to be the only God and only Savior, Yahweh vows that He will yet be the object of universal worship. So it is this divine honor that is now bestowed on the Lord Yeshua He is Yahweh in the flesh. People to deny the deity of Christ, it's an abomination. He said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. He's God, and to worship Him as anything less than God is to be damned. Christianity affirms that Yeshua is God. All other religions deny it. Listen to the words of Scripture, 1 John 2, 22 and 23. Who's a liar? The one who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. Now let me ask you, what major religion would do that? Would deny Yeshua is the Christ? The Jews. Well, they're the great people of God, right? We should stand with them. We should protect them. He that touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. You've got to stand with the Jews. Right here, the Bible says they're liars. No, it goes on to say they're Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Does Judaism deny that Yeshua is the Christ? Yes. They don't have God then. Once Christ came on the scene and began His ministry, any Jew who rejected Him was damned. That was a separating point. He was, he was what the whole Scripture was about. It all pointed to Him. From the very beginning, it pointed to Him. He shows up and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. If you reject Him, you're damned. This condemns not only Judaism, but all other religions as well. You say, that's so narrow-minded. Yes, it is. So Christianity is a narrow way. You come through Yeshua, or you don't come at all. That's narrow enough. But, you know, the gospel is even more narrow than that because salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. See, there's a a preterist book out called A Time of Transition. In this book, the author says this, The scripture has been terribly abused by those who advocate the pernicious doctrine of salvation by faith alone. It's pernicious. It's damaging. It's deadly. Faith alone. The false doctrine of faith alone teaches that a person is instantly saved on the mental ascent. Okay, if it's not mental ascent, what is it? How do you get saved? What do you do? What do you do? You got to get. It's, it's not mental? You, well, yeah, you got to work, I guess. Instantly saved on the mental ascent. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Such a doctrine contradicts many scriptures and vastly disagrees with faith as revealed in the Bible. I've told you this over and over. Just because somebody's a preterist, they believe the Lord returned, doesn't mean they're right. So much in this movement is messed up. Okay? Test all things. All right? 
And I love the way he says, <laughs> it contradicts many scriptures. And he lists one. Okay? And the one he lists is this, James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Listen, James here is talking about being justified before men by what you do. Because that's all, men can't see your faith. We've dealt with this verse on James. I encourage you, if you want more information on this, go to the website. Because James is the, the scripture everybody runs to. When you try to say works aren't involved in salvation. What about James? Go to James. It's on there on the website. Please look at it. I think you'll, uh, I think you'll see that James is not talking about what most people think he is. The sad thing is that most forms of the gospel preached today are what I would call faith plus gospels. And these say that faith in Christ for eternal salvation is necessary. It's not enough. Okay? It's not enough. Now, they won't say that, probably most of them, but that's what they mean. It's not enough because you have to have works also if you're going to get to heaven. You can't just believe. Salvation is not by faith plus works. It's by faith alone. Sola fide. Faith alone. That was the cry of the Reformation. Now, you may think that's kind of basic and beyond saying, but all religions try to add some kind of human work. Because they teach faith alone is not enough. The Judaizers taught faith plus works in Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Oh, okay, so we believe, but that's not good. No, 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 you've got to be circumcised, okay? Faith alone is not enough. Listen, this scripture could be used for the Church of Christ. Unless you are baptized... According to the custom of the Church of Christ, you cannot be saved. You're adding works, a work of man, to the gospel. The only condition of eternal salvation is faith in Christ. Even a casual reading of the Gospel of John. And you know, a lot of times when people first get saved, they give them, read the Gospel of John. You ever heard that? You ever told anybody that? Why? Why does the Gospel of John stand out so much? It's the only book in Scripture that states that its purpose is to bring men to faith in Christ. It's the only book. It states that as its purpose. John 20, 31. These are written, John's talking about the signs that are written in this book. Why? So that you will believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you'll have life in His name. So the goal of Lazarus writing these truths about Yeshua is so people will personally believe in Him and receive eternal life. If we miss that, we miss everything. That makes this book very, very important. One thing you'll hear from a lot of people that's necessary for salvation is repentance. Right? Ever heard that? You've got to repent. Well... That could be, you know, argument about words. Repent. Metanoia, the Greek word, means change your mind. Well, if you don't believe, and now you believe, what'd you just do? You changed your mind. But most people look at repent as turning from sin. Okay? So they say, unless you turn from sin, you can't be saved. Well, here's the funny thing John doesn't mention repentance in this book. Man, did he screw up. He wrote a book telling people how to get saved, and he forgot to tell them how to get saved. It's just crazy. He left a lot of other things out, too. You know? <laughs> oh. People, the way to have eternal life, the way is faith in Christ. You just look at what John says. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. That's it. Okay? Uh, John 3.18 Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only name of the Son of God. Okay? John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes, Him who sent Me has eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment. He's passed from death to life. What did He do? He believed. Nothing else He's adding here. John eleven twenty six, 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
Faith in Christ is the conviction that He is the guarantor of eternal life for everyone who believes. Now, many add what Yeshua said at the... They try to distort the gospel. They Man believes and he's got to turn from his sins and he's got to persevere in good works and he's got to... All these different things, they'll add to it. Why? Because it's just too simple to believe. Right? They don't... They don't they don't like that. And it's called easy believism. What other kind of believism is there? <laughs> hard believism? Huh? That's really hard to believe. Someone says, uh, yes, he's the giver of eternal life. However, to be saved, it takes more than just believing. You must also commit your life to him. You got to turn from your sins. You got to confess him. You have to obey him. You have to be baptized. On and on and on and on. But the biggest thing is obedience, right? You have to obey if you're going to be a Christian. Here's my question to those people How much? How much do I have to obey? How much obedience is required for salvation? Is it 100%? You can't be that, right? Christ is the only one that did that. So, what's how much do I have? That's an important question. No one ever will answer that for you. They can't. They can't answer that. How much do I have to obey? Ask people that next time they, you hear that kind of a thing of they're going to add to what you have to do. Once again, if a person is convicted that, his, that this distorted message is true, then he doesn't believe what Yeshua is saying. If, he, if you add something to the Gospel, you destroy the Gospel. Because Yeshua made it clear that the only condition is being convinced that He is the one who can provide eternal life to those who trust in Him. Anything to that, anything added to that, is a different gospel. Now, the Roman Catholics, they teach you're saved by faith, plus works. You gotta, you gotta help them out. You gotta do some things. Lordship salvation teaches the same thing. We're saved by faith that works. Okay? So they make works a necessary condition, whether you put it at the beginning or the end. If it's a condition, you have to have it. And without it, you don't have salvation. To make works a necessary condition confuses grace with merit. The Scriptures are clear that you know we're saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Why? So no one can boast. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It confuses the work of Christ with what we're required to do. We're required to believe what Christ did for us. Here's what you got to understand, believer. And this is, this is awesome. It is Christ's obedience who save, that saves us. Not ours. Okay? Romans 5.19. This is one of those verses you got to memorize. you got to know. For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So also, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's not our obedience that saves us, because our obedience is a mess at the best, all right? Christ lived a 100% obedient life, and we have His obedience, okay? His righteousness is put to our account. Our sin is put to His account. The only requirement for salvation is to believe the gospel. Not only is believing the gospel enough, it's the only way to salvation. Yeshua guarantees eternal life for all who believe Him. And the question is, do you believe that? So he's, Paul, I mean, Yeshua here says, enter by the narrow gate. So Yeshua could be teaching in this text that Christianity is very narrow. It is a narrow way. You enter only by faith in Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. I'm convinced of that. Hopefully you are. But I'm not convinced that that is what Yeshua is saying in this text. It's true biblically, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. It seems to me that Yeshua is not talking about the gate or the road to Christianity, but to discipleship. Now let me share with you why I think these verses deal with discipleship. Yeshua here is saying that the way is narrow, the way is difficult. Let's look at just some of the Greek words here that are used in this verse. First of all, the word for narrow here. This is the Greek word stenos. Stenos means difficult, distressful, 
narrow by reason of obstacles which surround it, difficult to continue or hold up. So let me ask you, do you see coming to faith in Christ as difficult? Did you have to strive, agonize, work? Listen, it is in fact impossible apart from the work of God. All right? God gives us life and the faith to believe. What is difficult here is the practice of the principles that the Lord lays out for obedience for the believer. That's what's difficult. Yeshua taught in the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> this is living, Christian living. It calls for commitment. It calls for discipline. It's a difficult way. That's what we looked at in Thessalonians. We, this is not simple. This is not easy. It's difficult. And I think these verses here in Matthew, they have to be taken in context with the golden rule. Look what the verse prior to this says in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, you do to them. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Don't we all live that way? Not hardly. People, listen. Discipleship, following Christ, is narrow and it's difficult. How about when Yeshua says, love your enemies? Oh, that's natural, right? How narrow and difficult is that? Enter by the narrow gate. He's talking to his disciples. This is far from being an easy thing, okay? Let's look at what Christ said in Luke here. He says, strive... To enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and they won't be able. The Greek word for strive here is agonizomai. What do you think word we get out of that? Agony. Agonize. This is very expressive and emphatic meaning agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. This word occurs again in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises agonizomai in all things. Alright, the reference here is to athletes who put in the marathon races, they're willing to undergo whatever kind of self-discipline, whatever kind of pain, whatever they need to go through to receive the crown. This word rendered agonizomai is translated Labor fervently in Colossians 4.12. It's translated fight in 2 Timothy 4.7. Listen, if you know anything about athletics, anybody that's good at athletics, they didn't just get good by, oh, they're just naturally good. They worked at it. No one gets to the top of their game without working, without agonizing, without practice after practice after practice and disciplining themselves to make it there. It's a battle, it's a struggle, it's extreme effort. There's almost a violence implied. Believer, let me ask you, is this how you became a Christian? Man, I had to really agonize to get there. Do you strive, labor, agonize to become a Christian? No! One of the most important, and I think misunderstood distinctions in the Bible, is that between a Christian and a disciple. This is why so many people get messed up and think, well, you have to do this or you're not saved or this is not... No, it's all just to understand what the Bible teaches. Because many see Christian and disciple as synonymous. I think the Bible makes a a distinction between the two. So how does a person become a Christian? What do you have to do to become a Christian? The answer is simple. Believe the gospel. A person becomes a Christian through faith in Christ. Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. That's it. Oh no, they say, look at the rest of the verse. Whoever does not obey shall not see life. See, you have to obey, right? Well, that's probably not the best translation because the word translated obey here is apetheo. And the leading Greek lexicon of the New Testament, which is Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker, make a very insightful comment here about epitheo that sheds light on this verse. They say this, Since in the view of the early Christians, the supreme disobedience was a refusal to believe their gospel, 
Apitheo may be restricted in some passages to the meaning disbelieve, be an unbeliever. So whoever does not believe the Son of God will not see life. Again, over and over, people, this is the stress. A person becomes a Christian when they understand and believe the gospel of Christ. At that moment, they're placed in the body of Christ. They're given Christ's righteousness. They're indwelt by God. They're as sure of heaven as if they were already there. They are in Christ, in union with Christ. Now, the Scriptures make it quite clear that salvation is a free gift of God's grace, but the Scriptures also teach that discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education, our maturity in the Christian life. Compare these two texts. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What do you got to do? Just believe. Eternal life is a gift of grace to all who believe. Do you see any cost involved here? Do you see any sense of striving or agony, labor? But now notice what Yeshua says in Luke 14.33. So therefore... Any, of, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Discipleship is a call to forsake all and follow Christ. Can this be talking about the same thing as John 3.16? This is where people get all confused. They think If they think discipleship is Christianity, then you read this and you're like, oh my word. This is why the Lordship Salvation people come out and say, you got to give up it all, you got to follow, you got to obey totally. This can't be talking about the same thing. I see discipleship as a conditional relationship that can be interrupted or terminated after it has begun. Listen, all Christians, everybody who's trusted Christ, is called to be a disciple. So why don't more follow? Why aren't many more Christians being disciples? The way is narrow. The way is difficult. They're not willing to pay the price. Discipleship is costly. There's a lot of other factors involved. If someone is a Christian and they're not educated, they don't know what they're supposed to do. They never grow. They never mature because they're never being taught the Word of God. If you go to your typical Baptist church, you get you hear about salvation every Sunday. So once you're saved, what are you doing there? You're hearing about how to get saved again. Again and again and again. And it never goes beyond salvation, and so you're just a brand new baby Christian who never matures because you're not being taught the Word of God. I think this idea of can be stated in terms of union and communion. Okay, Christianity and discipleship. Let's talk about union and communion. Positionally, We're united to Christ. That's our union. Practically, we're called to walk in fellowship with Christ. That's our communion. And I think there's a picture of this in the relationship with marriage. Okay, it's just a picture. It's not a perfect example. And you'll understand why when I say this in a minute. But a man and a woman get married. They enter into a relationship. They're in a union. A covenantal union. As the years pass, the relationship, their communion may be good or bad, right? Depending on the, on the man and how much he lines up like he's supposed to, okay? But whatever their experience, the fact of the union remains. Now, of course, I know there's divorce here, but God doesn't do that, so we're just using the illustration of communion, all right? In a similar way, we enter eternal union with God at salvation, but our communion is based upon a living act of faith. And we can drift in and out of communion with God just as we can drift in and out of communion with a spouse. The conditions of fellowship are seen in 1 John 1, 6-9. He says, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie. Because we're not walking with Him because He's in the light and we're in darkness. And we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, God's in the light. As He is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Yeshua, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess here is the Greek, homologeo, it means to agree with another. If you agree with God that what you're doing is sin, then He can forgive you 
and cleanse you from unrighteousness. People, willful disobedience breaks our communion with God. When we're in communion with God, we are constantly cleansed by the blood of Christ. This is a beautiful description of the intimacy and the fellowship that our union in Christ should bring. Now, the Bible speaks about our communion with Christ in many ways. In John 15, it's called abiding in Christ. In 1 John, it's called fellowship, or it's called knowing Him. In James, it's called a living faith, or being a doer of the Word. Throughout the New Testament, this communion relationship is referred to as discipleship. Look at John 8, 31 and 32. So Yeshua said to the Jews who had believed in Him. Now, you got that context? These are Jews who had trusted Christ, right? Now watch what he says to them. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So they're believers already, but he says, you have to abide in my word if you want to be my disciple. In John 15, he says, already are you clean? Now if you go back to John 13, he says, you are clean, but not all. Why do you say that? Because Judas was there, and Judas wasn't saved, all right? So you're clean, but not all. But now he's saying, you're clean, because of the words I've spoken to you. So you're, you're Christians. Then he says this, abide in me. So he's telling the Christians to abide in him. So let me ask you again. Is salvation narrow and difficult? No, it is impossible. Apart from God. That's what we have to understand. Look at John 6.44. Any of you out there that are Arminian, I'd like to hear your exegesis of this verse, okay? This is the death of all Arminian theology. All right? No one can come to me. That's what Yeshua said. Nobody. No, no exceptions. Not you, not you. Nobody comes to me. No one can come to me. Oh, there's a, there's a condition here. Unless, oh, so see, I'm the unless. Well, here's what, unless what? unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, you got that? Nobody comes unless God draws. All right, let's talk for a minute about the word draws there. This is the Greek, helkuo. Helkuo means to drag by irresistible superiority. Okay, look it up. It's only used like, I think, seven or eight times in the New Testament. Look up every use, see what it says, and then you tell me this, what this means, okay? Nobody comes to God unless God the Father draws him. And all who belong to him, all his elect, he draws. And he says, I'll raise him up at the last day. They're not going to get away. Salvation, people, is not difficult for man to achieve. It's impossible apart from God's grace and pulling us into salvation. Now you say, well, God drags us kicking and screaming. No. He draws by irresistible superiority because he takes out your stony heart and he gives you a heart of flesh. He gives you life and then you can believe the gospel. He gives you life, he gives you faith, and then you believe. Salvation comes to us by grace through faith, but discipleship is a call to obedience. It's a call to live out the principles stated in the Word of God, in the New Testament. Things taught by Paul, things taught by Yeshua. Particularly here, he's talking about the things he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may object to this view by saying, well, these two roads are said to lead to destruction or life. Isn't that speaking of eternal destinies? One commentator says this, when Jesus refers to life in these verses, he's talking about eternal life. My question is, how do you know? How do you know that? See, the Greek word for life here is zoe, life. This term is often joined with eternal, some 30 times, and with everlasting, some 17 times. That that would clearly denote eternal life or redemption. But the term zoe by itself can refer to a quality of life. Over and over in Proverbs, they talk about righteousness leading to life. All right? And this is not talking about eternal life. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. But he who pursues evil will die. You're chasing after evil, it's going to cost you. All right? 
Proverbs 14.30, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Here, envy causes physical problems, but a sound heart is life. This speaks of a quality of life. Proverbs 19.23, The fear of Yahweh leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. So here life is satisfaction and the absence of being visited by harm or evil. Proverbs 22.4 The reward for humility and fear of Yahweh is riches, honor, and life. Humility doesn't bring physical life, but it brings a quality of life. So the word life here, as used in our text, can refer to quality of life, a fellowship with God. If you wanted to refer to eternal life, the Lord really could have said this without any doubt. Leads to everlasting life. Leads to eternal life. He could have said that. But that's not what he said. And by life here, he means the glorious state of unclouded fellowship with God. It's the idea of the heart being satisfied with God. The realization of his unspeakable excellency and the fullness of joy in his presence. Well, what about the word destruction? Doesn't that imply eternal punishment? Not necessarily. Let's look at this Greek word for a minute. The word destruction here is the Greek noun apoleia which means ruin, loss, destruction. It's translated wasted in Mark 14.4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted? That's our noun. Same thing. Okay, so that's not, it's not eternally destroyed. It's just a waste. Now the verb form is used of physical death in uh, 1 Corinthians 10.9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is Apollo me. What happened when the serpents bit, serpents bit them? They died. So it's talking about death, physical death. The verb form of the word is also used of unbelievers being eternally damned. It is used that way in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. So you got life and you got perishing. But here's what's interesting. This same verb is also used of believers. So here it's referring to non-believers. But look at Romans 14, 15. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy, Apollomy, the one for whom Christ died. All right, now as those who hold to the Reformed faith, we know that if Christ died for them, then they're believers, right? He says, if your brother, talking about a Christian brother, is grieved, don't destroy them. Christ died for them, don't destroy him. You can't cause a believer to perish. It's talking about some kind of spiritual loss here. Apollomy is used to speak of loss of reward in 2 John 1.8. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So Yeshua could be using apoleia here in Matthew 7.13 to speak of loss, of spiritual blessedness, or physical death, or a wasted life. I believe that the narrow and the difficult way that Yeshua is referring to here is that of discipleship. He's referring to all he's been talking about in this sermon, And he is calling on believers to live radically different lives. This goes back to the Thessalonian passage. This is radical. This is different. But let's just look at a few things that Yeshua said he expects of believers. In Matthew 5.44, he says, love your enemies. We do that, right? Pray for those who persecute you. You know, praying for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love. Because that means you really want to want something good for them because you're not going to trick God. And the prayer here is maybe that they'll be saved. Maybe that their eyes will be open. But you're praying for their good. You're not praying for their harm. You're not saying, you know, praying for them to be struck by lightning or a rock to fall on their house or something like that. That's not the idea. You're saying we should pray for their behalf to, on their behalf to God. 
Again, it may be for their conversion, for their repentance, but it's always a prayer for their good. Now, let me ask you this. How many Christians do you know that live like this? They have people that are desperate enemies. You know what they do? They just pray for their best. When is the last time you prayed for an enemy? When is the last time you prayed for somebody who mistreated you and persecuted you? This is how the disciples of Yeshua are to live. Now, in the end of chapter 6, Yeshua says, we're not to worry about our lives. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Now, the kingdom of God signifies the rule of God. To seek the kingdom of God is to come under His kingship, which means you submit to Him as king. The word righteousness, as used in the text here, comes from the Greek dikaiosune, which means a pattern of life conformed to the will of God. The word seek here is the Greek word zetao, and it means to seek, to desire, to worship. But not only must we seek His kingdom and His righteousness, it should be our supreme priority. The word first here in our text comes from the Greek word protos, which means first in order of importance, first, chiefest of all, holding the highest place in our our affections. The Lord is saying that the first place in the priority of our affections is His will. Not our will, not our desires. And when He's speaking of His kingdom, He's talking about our coming under submission to His reign. It's setting our priorities straight so the authority of His Word occupies the first place in our lives. It means to walk under His reign, to live in obedience to Him. Notice how he ends the verse. And all these things will be added to you. What things? The things that Gentiles seek and strive for. The Lord is telling us, don't worry about those things. You just walk in obedience to Me. I'll provide everything you need. Doesn't mean He's going to give you every fleshly desire you have, but listen, your needs will be met when you're walking in fellowship with God. But Because what I mean by that is, If you're in fellowship with God, what else could you need? What else could you want? I believe that this is the life that the narrow and difficult path leads to. It is the blessing of God. It is joy. It is peace. It is contentment that comes from Christ being the priority of your life. Listen, nothing else can bring the joy that an intimate relationship with God can bring. And once you learn to base your peace and contentment on your relationship with God, nothing in the world can shake that. Because God's unchangeable. And it seems that few Christians today live at this level spiritually. Which is why we have so much anxiety, so much dissatisfaction in the church today. Yeshua says, and those who find it are few. You know, there's many on the broad road, but there's few on the narrow and difficult way. Among the many people who have trusted Christ, there are few who truly follow His principles. Do you think that's true? What about your experience with Christianity? How many Christians do you know who live their lives according to the principles taught in the Word of God and that is first and foremost of importance to them? Most Christians seem to be dominated by pride and selfishness. They spend very little time seeking the Kingdom of God. They're too busy pursuing their own carnal desires. A Christian husband told his Christian wife, I look at porn because you're so ugly. Can you even fathom that, people, coming from a Christian? First of all, no Christian should be looking at porn. Porn is destructive. Porn is damaging to the life. I mean, you can look at medical statistics and show the damage that pornography does to the life. In his book, What Americans Believe, George Barna states this. One of the most penetrating and inescapable questions that confronts Americans is, why am I alive? The answers he found were most surprising. He said, most adults conclude that we exist to gratify the flesh. 
63% concur that the purpose in life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. We're just all about satisfying ourselves, right? Let me share with you some alarming statistics that I found on an atheist's website. He writes this, Warning! Christianity doesn't work as advertised. I can't argue with that. The divorce rate for Christians is higher than for atheists. More than half of Christians are habitual liars. Because we don't think it's that big a deal. (laughs) Few Christians have personal happiness. All this from Christian pollster Barna. Do you still think Christians are better than atheists? You better think again. We have a hard time dealing with stuff like this because it's true. The church doesn't reflect the difference from the world. Pollster George Barna reported, born-again Christians have a higher rate of divorce than non-believers. Fundamentalists top them all. An 87% divorced after accepting Christ presumably aware of the biblical teaching on divorce. 75% of born-again Christians lie regularly. Conscious, premeditated lies. Desiring to have a close personal relationship with God ranks sixth among 21 goals tested among born-agains. Here's 21 goals. What would you want? Well, number six, let's, I might have a relationship with God. What in the world? What are the other five? Well, one of them, trailing such desires as living a comfortable lifestyle. See, we're just all in it for our comfort, our life. Let's just be comfortable. Okay, again, the persecuted church. Do you think those people are trying to just live a comfortable life? They're not going to be persecuted if they are. Are people's lives being transformed by Christianity? Barna has asked, we can't find evidence of a transformation. And that's why the church has lowered its standards so much. Someone's a Christian today because they go to church. Matter of fact, they don't even have to do that. They just I'm a Christian. I look at my Bible occasionally. Or I believe in God, and so that's it. I'm done. And that's if you truly do believe the gospel, you are a Christian. But as a Christian, you're expected to be a disciple, to follow the Lord, to be a Christ follower and emulate Him in the way you live and the things you do. Although his statistics often show self-described Christians living lives no different than atheists, Barna hasn't, it hasn't seemed to shake in Barna's faith, which is amazing. He says, the issue isn't whether Jesus or Christianity is real, he said. The issue is, are Americans willing to put Christ first in their lives? I agree with Barna. The Christians are just not willing to put Christ first. Why aren't they willing to? I think the answer is simple. It's a narrow way. It's a difficult way. And we're selfish, lazy people who just thinks, well, God understands. He'll get over it. And we can do what we want to do. Proverbs 2, 1-5 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, this idea is you're calling out to God, teach me, Lord, show me your word, help me understand it. If you seek like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you'll understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. Do you seek for an intimate relationship with God as you would for earthly treasure? Let me pose a question for you. Which road are you on? Oh, man, how'd that get messed up? Yeah, the life was one word when we started this presentation. There's demons in the PowerPoint. Listen, if you're on the narrow road, Your life will be lived in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Christ will be your life. His will will consume you. It will be the all-important thing that guides and directs your life. 
He will have the preeminence in your life. Now, Yeshua ends his sermon by stressing the importance of doing what he says. He says it isn't easy to do what he says because the road is narrow and it's difficult. But it's vitally important that we do so. It is the path to a blessed life. Look at Psalms 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. That's his delight. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This is the difference, people. First of all, he talks about you're not hanging out with these people. Okay? Because the proverb says, he that walks with wise men will be wise but a, command, a companion of fools will suffer harm. So he doesn't do that, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on the law he meditates day and night. The law is always going through his mind. He's always reviewing it. He's always running over it. He says he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. People, the narrow road leads to a blessed, peaceful, satisfied life. But the road to destruction is misery. It's turmoil. I don't understand why Christians want to go down a road to destruction. Have so much pain, so much agony in their life, when if they would just follow the Lord, they wouldn't be there. So which road are you on? I think that Moses' words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy are a fitting closing this morning. Moses said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live. There you go. That slide seemed to remember its place. (laughs) Choose life, believer. Don't take the easy road that leads to destruction and ruin. It's painful. And I see so many Christians who don't want to live for the Lord and their lives are a mess. Pain, agony, separation, just so many bad things. Walk on the difficult, walk on the narrow road that leads to the abundant life. The narrow road is one of obedience to the Word of God. And next week we're going to talk about building on the rock, not on the sand. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I just grieve over Your church that is so confused, Lord. So confused. Father, help us to understand our calling as Your children. Called to live holy. Called to live righteously. Called to be image bearers of You. Called to imitate You in the way we live. The way we think. The way we talk. Father, I pray that our lives may impact the culture in which we live. On our job, at our school, at our work, in our neighborhoods. That people would see a difference in the way we live and respond to life. Father, thank you for your amazing grace to us. Lord, I thank you for the sweetness of walking in fellowship with you. Oh Lord, what a joy, what a blessing. Thank you, Father, for that opportunity that we as mere mortals have to commune with the living God. May we seek it, Lord, with all our heart. Amen. Questions, comments? Oh, Lord. Doug, Doug, Doug. (laughs) Doug says, you just turned a pig farm into a a pulled pork festival. (laughs) You got away with words, Doug. I'll give you that. Awesome teaching. Thank you, Pastor. (laughs) A pig farm into a... I like pulled pork, so I'm I'm dumbed down with that, okay? (laughs) Gary. Um, Trusting and accepting what you said is true and of course the scripture says pray for your enemies but uh, how does it hold up in preparatory prayers which is 
Okay, that's a good question, and we get this often. Okay, Gary's asking about imprecatory prayers. You know, we pray, God, judge him, smite him. You know, may his, may his, may his wife be a widow and, you know, go on those imprecatory prayers. This is talking about how we, you and I, live. Okay, imprecatory prayers are prayers against evil that's affecting. This is not you. This is not a personal thing. I want to get even with them, so I pray God would smite them. It's more in a national, more, okay, I'm praying that God would, you know, install some rulers here, our leaders that would be good, godly men, that we'd, you know, be able to live in peace. So you have to make a distinction between personal and communal, all right? <laughs> Nancy in Texas, trying to understand who is Galatians 5.21 directed to? Disciples? I don't know. Let me go to Galatians 5.21 and look at it. Come on. Galatians 5.21. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, anything similar. I'm warning you about these things I warned you before. Those who practice... Yes, it's directed towards believers. We're not to live like this, okay? These are the sins of the flesh. The works of the flesh, he says, are obvious. And he lists all these works of the flesh. You're not supposed to live like that. And he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The thing is, the people who live like this, this is how the world lives, and they don't inherit the kingdom of God. So as believers, you're to be different because you do inherit the kingdom of God. He's not saying if you do these things, guess what? You, you get out. You're out. You're kicked out. No. And then he goes on to the fruit of the Spirit, and he tells them this is how you're to live. This is what the Spirit produces. So when you walk in the Spirit, these will be the products. Uh, Shelly asked, does imprecatory prayer for our enemies count? Okay, we just we just dealt with that. Gary got ahead of you there, Shelly. But yeah, I mean, I think we pray imprecatory prayers, and I know that I do, okay? I think 98% of our government is corrupt evil. And I don't mean they're just, you know, they're not nice people, and I don't mean they disagree with me on politics. I mean they're evil, evil to the core. I think someday it's going to be exposed what's happening in our country. And when it does, most people won't be able to handle it. These people are sick, evil, demented people. I mean, they're the greatest, co- the greatest you know, evidence for demon possession you'd ever see. Because they're just evil. But we can't blame demons, it's just them. They're just evil people. Norm says, I just want to thank you for your relentless relentless pursuit of the truth. Love this flock and love the shepherd. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you, Norm. Uh, Dana, powerful and convicting message. Thank you so much. Our cats have even been added to the congregation. You even turned their heads to the scriptures. <laughs> He's got a picture of a cat looking at the screen. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. People, I would, I would encourage you to look into this subject more in depth because I think it's something that's very confusing to people, the distinction between a Christian and a disciple. You know, you become a Christian. It's not hard. It's not agonizing. It's you become it because God has called you. You trust in Him. And He gives you eternal life. But He expects things of you. He asks you to live for Him. And we just see so little of this today that, like I said, it, like Barna made clear, it's, it's indistinguishable. Christians and non-Christians. What's the difference? We do everything they do. Uh, this is from Gary and Chris and P.A., morning, Pastor Dave. What a blessing it is to watch you every week. You teach the beautiful truth. The Lord has truly blessed you to teach. You find everything diligently. I am the same way, but you shed, you're shed, <coughs> you're shed of me. <laughs> you're ahead of me, I think, in a lot of Hebraic thinking and knowledge. Love you and appreciate you so much. Uh, I know your people must really know what an incredible blessing it is to have. I don't know. You have to ask them. 
Send them a text. <laughs> no, and, and Gary, I'm glad you asked the question because I want to answer your question from last week. Uh, I meant to get that more, more involved in that, but you asked about the virgins and in the, in the parable of the virgins, the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. All right, here's the thing. Number one thing you got to grab there. It's a parable. What is the number one rule of parabolic interpretation? <laughs> you don't make a parable walk on all fours. In other words, all the details are not important. Okay, what the parable is trying to teach is one central truth. The one central truth in that parable is readiness. Be prepared. So in the parable, when he says, I don't know you, it's not like the Lord saying, I don't know you to other people. Okay, that's not, he's not saying you can't be a Christian. I don't know you. That's not, the parable is not dealing with that at all. It's dealing with the, when the Lord is coming, the delay is longer than people thought it was going to be. So they're not ready. He's saying, you got to be ready, you got to be watchful. That's the, it, that's the key there. See, when we're dealing with different literature, we have to use different techniques. When it's didactic literature, we get in there and try to say, this means what it says, we've got to tear this apart, figure out what it means. When you're dealing with parables, you just can't, I mean, some of those parables have so many different details, and people try to make everything mean something, and it doesn't. That's not the point. It's a story. Okay? Why was the lady's hair purple? It's not, it, that's not part of the story. It's just part of the story. It doesn't matter, okay? It doesn't mean whatever. All right. <laughs> Anybody else? 